Greetings, friends, and welcome back, or welcome to the High Flyers Podcast. The show, the curious ones, the ones that want to learn to fly high from individual spreading value in a variety of industries and bodies to learn about their sunrise, their magic moments, their hustle, and a load of golden nuggets and insight to help you be 1% better every day. And I'm your host, Peter Tuggerock. In this episode, we take flight with Josh Blanksby. Hear about his upbringing in Gold Coast with an outdoor lifestyle, trying various activities growing up and a passion for sport from a young age and then the pathway into the business sport that started from him being a lawyer early on, which included moving cities within Australia and also living overseas in Ireland for three years. Josh talks about a few fork in the road moments, including moving away from his legal career and joining Betfair, a startup growing in Australia and being one of their first employees and being heavily involved in, in their growth, which included going to the High Court a couple of times, meeting his wife from the US and learning about the US culture and some of the differences between Australia and the US, learning Josh has had as a leader and some really interesting insights about the racing and the betting industry and Josh's first-hand experience there. And what are some of the focuses coming up for the industry, including how they can continue to protect the environment and the people involved in a more sustainable way? You ready to fly high? Josh, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Vidit. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure. Pleasure. You've come highly recommended by a close friend, so looking forward to this conversation. <laughs> now, there might be listeners who may not be as familiar with your journey. Did you want to give a quick summary on who you are and where you are in life today? Yeah, no problems. Um, I'm currently the uh, CEO of the Melbourne Racing Club. Uh, so we're based obviously in Melbourne, but based at the Caulfield Racecourse. I think most of your listeners would probably have heard of the Caulfield Cup, um, some of the iconic races in Australia. So that's our flagship race that uh, we operate. Um, we operate, also operate a, a couple of other racecourses in, in Sandown and Mornington um, within Victoria. Um, we're a members-based club, so a non-for-profit members-based club that's there for the the performance of um, horse racing. So, but I suppose one of the unique things about the Melbourne Racing Club is that we have um, have diversified our business, and we we do, we do a large hospitality and pub business, large events business, and uh, and also a property development arms. So that's all been part of sort of the racing journey um, to diversify revenues to allow racing to continue to be funded. Uh, so I've been in that role for um, just over three years now, um, and prior to that, I was with the club in a in a legal and commercial role um, for around four years. So just helping the club with with its sort of uh, governance and um, corporate relationships and so on. And um, and then prior to that, I was uh, I was with Betfair, which is an, an online gambling arm. So mm-hmm. sort of been the arc of my career. I'm I'm married, um, got two young kids, which keep me very busy. Got a, uh, a son Leo, who's seven, and, and a daughter Harper, who's five. So live locally in in, in Caulfield South, and uh, yeah, have a uh, enjoying life at the moment. Mm, brilliant. Yeah, looking forward to getting to more of your work later on in the episode. Um, let's start off with your sunrise, your your early journey, and if you reflect back on your childhood and your sort of, I guess, your influences growing up. So what, what, what was that looking back? Like what was young Josh growing up and what was the influence of family? And, and I believe you grew up in Queensland. Yeah, I grew up on the Gold Coast. Um, so um, grew up, grew up, I'm actually up here right at the moment, um, holidaying at the moment. Um, my parents still live here, so 
it's been great to finally uh, get through the border and, and come up. I haven't seen them for quite some time, so it's been it's been great for them to reconnect with with their grandkids. Um, although, ironically, as we we're just talking about it, there's been another sort of short breakout up here. So who knows how long we might be up here? But it's not the worst mm. place to be stuck. Um, yeah, so I grew up here. I went to school um, and university here, and um, it was a great place to grow up. The Gold Coast is is wonderful in terms of the outdoor activities. I was I was into sport. At a very young age, I um, wasn't wasn't too crash hot at it, but um, but but just loved it and just loved uh, being involved in all sorts of activities. So, you know, played cricket, rugby, golf, tennis, um, sort of you name it. I, I tried it, and that was sort of that's what I remember most of my upbringing. Um, you know, I had a father who was uh, very active as well um, into sports himself. So that was sort of our real bond. That was how we sort of made our connection. Whether it was me participating in sports or us attending. I remember going to, uh, you know, always we went to the first day of the Gabba test every year and I remember sitting yep. sitting on the old greyhound track around the Gabba um, is where uh, he used to plonk me. And it's funny in those days, you just get plonked there with all the other kids and, uh, you know, Dad would come back every sort of couple, <laughs> couple of times during the day and give you a bottle of water or something, but you just you loved it, you know. It's just what you did and you sat there watching mm. his, uh, Australian teams of the eighties who, who weren't that good in those days, but um, yeah, it was a good it was a good lifestyle growing up here. Mm. Yeah, I think one thing that's that's interesting to me and, and listeners who maybe are not from Australia might might not be aware of this, but I think Queensland has that sort of rugged, tugged vibe. Whereas, obviously, if you grow up in New South Wales or Victoria, sort of a city city kid. But what was that like for you? Was did you? Because I know you mentioned when we were chatting leading up to this, you said you had a a good life and a, and a life where your parents gave you a lot. Do you think looking back that set you up well in terms of being becoming more resilient and, and sort of handling life challenges? Yeah, look, I think so, did it. My, my parents were, were extremely positive and, and um, gave myself and my sister every opportunity. Um, you know, they, they worked hard and they ensured that we uh, went to very good schools and, you know, encouraged us to participate in, in all sorts of things. And for me, it was mainly sport and and um, just gave that a lot of that support. And the lifestyle up here created that. You know, you were outdoors all the time, uh, mainly due to the weather and just how, 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 the, um, how the Gold Coast was set up at those times. It was, you know, this was sort of 30, 30 years ago. So Gold Coast was in its sort of peak of, um, you know, razzmatazz and being the holiday destination. So being a local was a bit, uh, people sort of didn't really believe anyone lived on the Gold Coast. They just thought people <laughs> holiday there. And when I tell people I'm from the Gold Coast, they go, I've never met anyone who's actually from the Gold Coast. So, um, <laughs> uh, but it was, yeah, it certainly was, um, it, it, was a, it was a good lifestyle and certainly taught me that, um, you know, we, we could, you could get out there and get involved in anything and, and give anything a go. And as I said, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't a world beater at it, but um, I certainly enjoyed it and I was certainly competitive which was mm. fun. Mm. And, and what were your aspirations growing up? Like, did you want to be something or did you look up to someone and you're like, I want to do that in life or I want to go down this path or even live in a different state or different country? What was teenage Josh when you were kind of at the back end of high school going into uni? What, what was your sort of thinking on life ahead? Yeah, yeah. I sort of, I always want to be involved in sport. Um, you know, I knew, as I said, I knew pretty early I probably wasn't going to be a professional sportsman. Um, but it sort of fascinated me, the sports um, administration and the business of sport, I, I suppose, is what mm. interested me. And initially, um, I thought the pathway to that was via journalism. And right. with my first sort of interest, and, never, you know, I was, I did quite well at subjects like English and, and history. So I thought, okay, well, you know, maybe I could, you know, head in that direction. And it was a conversation with my father, actually, who'd, um, 
you know, he, he, he was a, he was quite a good sportsman and I think had, had also ventured, wanted to venture into that sort of career. And he just gave me some really good advice, which is, well, just be careful with journalism because, you know, it tends, you tend to be able to get jumped over pretty quickly by ex-sportsmen. So, you know, you might work, you might work your, your butt off for sort of five or six years in a, in a certain area and then um, an ex-sportsman will just sort of jump in there and, you know, become, become the, the, um, and you see that a lot, you know, with, you know, you understand that with um, sports coverage and so on and the insight. Mm-hmm. I was watching the cricket recently, they're all the ex-cricketers and you understand completely why. So you've got to be very, very good if you're going to be the one non, I suppose, elite sportsman. So um, I, I, I didn't venture that way. And what I did do is have a bit of a look at those sort of sports administrators at the time. And and um, a lot of them had done law and um I wasn't hugely interested in law. I didn't, you know, I went to someone who grew up watching LA Law and thought I would, you know, argue uh, all these cases <laughs> everywhere. But I just thought law was a good generic type subject or generic course to open up some opportunities because I really didn't know what I wanted to be longer term. So um, I decided to study um, commerce and law and it really was just that I was lucky enough to have a good enough score to, to be able to do that. But then also I thought that could open up, just open up some flexibility in, in what I might do down the road. Mm. Yeah, I think I, I definitely resonated with that because I think a lot of people I speak to and even myself, I think studying commerce or studying business, it sort of gives you a very wide path ahead um, and it doesn't narrow it down for you. And then obviously looking at your LinkedIn, I noticed you did that and then you obviously went down the path of law, working at a few law firms. Was that again a conscious decision or was that again someone influenced you to go down that path looking back? Um, so yeah, it's interesting. You, you sort of, when you look back, it looks like you've sort of mapped it all out. But as you sort of know, you sort of mm-hmm. you make these decisions, and you sort of think it's the right one at the time. But you're not really thinking about the longer term. So I, uh, I graduated from university. I, I went to Bond Uni up here on the Gold Coast, and one of the benefits of Bond is that you come out a lot earlier because um, one of their um, attractiveness is they they do three semesters a year. So I graduated with a commerce and law degrees um, at 21. Um, so I was, I was very young and uh, I just wanted to go and um, live somewhere else. So I sort of just completely shot a, um, shotgun applied to, I think, around 22 law firms in Melbourne. Um, hmm. And thinking simply was, that, well, I've got a law degree and, you know, I should probably just complete my articles and, and become a, uh, you know, at least become a certified solicitor before I just sort of give, give up on it and go somewhere else. And that was really my thinking. And, and Melbourne... Um, you know, the articles at Melbourne at that time was only 12 months. So you only had to do 12 months at a law firm and then you were um, a certified solicitor compared to, say, mm. Queensland was two years and Sydney was a different process. So that was that was the thinking. And um, and also the other the other reason is that Melbourne would just took applications first. So they were just the first ones that you did at the time, the year before. So um, I remember, uh, yeah, a few, a few mate of mine were the ones who sort of applied in Melbourne. Everyone thought, well, why do you want to move to Melbourne? You know, like it's cold and grey and dreary. Um, but ironically, it's, you know, and we'll talk about it later, it sort of served its purpose in terms of where I've ended up because it's just such a sports-focused and a, a contact-based city. Um, mm. So, yeah, I headed down to Melbourne and, uh, and did my articles with, with Freehills um, in Melbourne, which was just a fantastic decision. You know, it was probably one of those forks in the road where I, know I probably could have gone to Brisbane or Sydney but um, made the decision to go to Melbourne and... Um, Lived down there when I was 21, and sort of Melbourne's now my my home. So that's great. Mm. 
Mm. No, I love hearing stories like that because I think one of the biggest objectives with this show for listeners is exactly that. Like, I think in today's world, there's a lot of pressure for young people to go, you've got to have life figured out. But I think everyone I've had in the show, and including my story, often that's not the case and things sort of fall in place as long as you sort of have a bit of belief and you try things out. I think that's right. I think I think people, as I sort of said to you, when you look back on someone's CV or LinkedIn profile, you think, oh yeah, they must have made some conscientious steps to go in that direction. But it's it's just not how it happens. Um, opportunities arise, and, and sometimes you're making decisions, not always based in the long term. It's just right there and then. And, and my thinking at that stage was, I you know, I've been on the Gold Coast, and I and I went, I didn't go away for university, which a lot of my friends had. Um, mm. So it was the time for me to, to to go and live in a different city, and that opportunity arose in Melbourne. Mm. Now, and tell me about you mentioned sport earlier, and the fact that you're fascinated. I'm very similar. Growing up, did you have any idols in the sports world, or did you have any posters on the wall? You're like, oh, I love that sports player, the way they go about life, the way they think, and I want to sort of that's my role model. Um, I think like everyone, we all had heroes. You know, we all had a sort of heroes growing up. Um, I suppose someone who's a little bit. Um, not as high profile, but who I used to love talking to because he used to always give me the, the, the background stories. My cousin is a guy called Greg Rowell, who was um, you know, played shield cricket at, at you know for both Queensland, New South Wales, and also Tasmania. So he played a lot of lot of high class shield cricket. Actually played in that Australia A team, that that famous Australian A team, when we decided to have two teams in the in the um, one day international competition, which I think Zimbabwe mm. now, and so. He played for them, but he unfortunately never got a never got a gig for Australia. He probably, he probably was just on that precipice. But um, I used to love chatting to him because he would just tell me the stories of those great Queensland Bulls teams of you know Matt Hayden and, and all those guys, and he was good friends with all of them. And um, you know, always sort of chatting to him about what it took you know to sort of be at that level. And I you know I always thought he could have played for Australia, and but it was just just how how much luck plays into things and how much you know. You just got to be you know, fit at the right time, and you know, just you know, have a break go your way. Um, so just understanding that from him was was really interesting for me because I used to love that. You know, I, I mean, I'm I'm an absolute sucker for sports documentaries, and I think you know the way sort of mm. business like ESPN has done it, or even recently with the test. You know, Amazon's the test. I just think those things are fantastic. Mm. So he was giving me like those insights in the '80s, um, in the late '80s, and early '90s into what professional sporting teams were like. So I used to, I just remember long Christmas nights, just absolutely. He must have. He was a little bit older than me, but I would just ask question after question about, well, what's Steve War like, and you know, what's Mark War like, <laughs> and uh, you know, and he just sort of have you know story after story about bowling to them and shield cricket and stuff and that was in the days you know when test players played a lot of shield cricket and things so that, that was always mm. oh super cool that's no that's that's i love that and yeah couldn't agree more that sports i think and i think if i look at it from my perspective i think sport teaches you that you can like you said earlier if you have that belief you can be from anywhere be born in any city but you can make it if you really focus and absolutely have a bit of luck but I think that shows in today's world where you look at sports players in the US or even in Australia to an extent. Um, and that's there's something beautiful about that, I think. Mm. Now, now, Josh, moving on to magic moments. I, I This is my favourite segment of the show because I think this is where the floodgates really open and, and people really share some of those moments that were pivotal looking back, whether it's in their working career or in their life or in general projects they worked on, experiences. I, I know leading up to this, we spoke and, and you mentioned you obviously had some cool experiences and, and you've seen a lot of different aspects about life and, and also work. Are there any that stand out for you that you look back on and you go, they were great learnings or I'm glad I went through that or I'm glad I met this person or I'm glad I got this piece of advice looking back? 
I'll, I'll, I'll probably give it a couple on. Um, I'll, I'll give you a work one, and then I'll and then I'll give you a, a personal one. Um, so work one, a really a really interesting one, your magical moment, as you call it, um, was when I returned from overseas. So after sort of a, a few years in Melbourne. Um, with Free Hills, which was fantastic, I, I decided that, like a lot of Australians, a lot of Australian lawyers might, might go overseas. And so I went over and I lived in Ireland for three years, um, lived in Dublin um, and practiced law there and played rugby there. And it was just fantastic sort of three years. Um, met a lot of wonderful people there and um, did a lot of travel. And, and so I was at the time of the Celtic Tiger. So Ireland was absolutely, you know, um, flourishing. So that was fantastic. And then I sort of said, well, okay, it's probably time to actually work out what I want to do because I didn't want I knew I'd mm. be a partner in a law firm and I sort of had to make that decision. Okay, if I want to go in-house or, or, or go into the commercial side of the world, I probably needed to do it then. So I was returning to Australia and, you know, reached out to a couple of recruiters and sort of sort of said, I'm on my way back. And, and two opportunities sort of came in front of me um, and one was with Macquarie Bank um, you know that you know still is you know one of Australia's you know most preeminent investment banks, and at the time it was sort of joining their their investment banking sort of side in a legal capacity. And I thought, oh, this is fantastic! You know, this will get me right into that sort of emerges and acquisition sort of stage, and right into sort of the mm. business world. It was based in Sydney, um, so I just ticked all these boxes. And uh, and then another opportunity came up, which was very left field, which was with 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 a business called Betfair, which was sort of a fledging online sports gambling business, and I'd known of Betfair in the UK. It was sort of had had broken through there, and, <coughs> excuse me, but um, had only just started in 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 Australia, and it was quite controversial Betfair because it it, it allows people to to um, take the opposing view on a bet and bet to lose, and and that, that caused a lot of controversies mm. with sporting organisations and racing organisations. And um, I remember sitting down with my parents and having these two these two options, and. Um, my mother was like, well, you've got to take the Macquarie Bank one. You know, it's, you know, what a fantastic job. It's there. And this other, you know, this online gambling thing, this could be a fly by night, you know, it could last mm. three months. And why do you want to get involved in that? But my, my father was like, well, isn't this sort of what you always sort of wanted to, wanted to sort of do? Didn't, isn't this your sort of your chance to get into that sort of sporting side? So after sort of a long debate, I think Macquarie Bank were quite shocked when I sort of rang up and said, oh, no, I'm, I'm not going to accept the role. Um, because you know that usually doesn't happen with them, and I accepted this role with Betfair, and you know I was I was one of the first four employees in Melbourne. You know we were just in this mm. serviced office and trying to set up, and it was just, but that again a sort of fork in the road decision um, that just opened so many doors for me, um, and, and from a career wise, and straight away I was engaging with every sporting organisation in Australia about how betting companies should work with them. You know we were the sponsor of the cricket. Um, you know, we had Richie Benno quoting odds, which was very controversial at the time. Um, people thought it was uh, blasphemy that he could possibly do that. Um, but you're right in the heart of it, and you're right in the heart of Mel- and that job was in Melbourne as well. Um, so it took me back to Melbourne. Mm. So I think that moment was probably the one where you sort of, you know, you just sort of go with your gut instinct, and you say, okay, well, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna try, I'm gonna try this this avenue. It might not be the safest one, and it could have been egg on my face. It could have been three months later. Well, this has gone nowhere, mm. and this company hasn't done anything, and I've given up a job with a, a pretty secure job with someone like Macquarie Bank. So, yeah, can, can I ask, can I ask a question that you mentioned at the start of the story that you were in Europe, in in Ireland, and you were networking recruiters, and this opportunity came up. I think one of the previous episodes with Ben Jesse. Um, he talked about that quite extensively where he went from Europe and came back and he felt he had to build a brand from scratch because 
um, and that was challenging to an extent. How did you find that? Because I think there'd be a lot of listeners who want to make the move overseas or want to come back home to Australia or go to another country. Are there any kind of steps you took back then to build that profile within Australia that helped you get these two high-profile opportunities? Um, yeah, I was probably a little bit. Uh, I was probably. I was coming back probably a little bit earlier, so I was still in that. You know, I probably wasn't going for sort of the high, higher profile roles that require you to to have those sort of contacts. Um, so, you know, I, I sort of I hadn't really done much at all, to be honest. You know, I just had I just reached out to a recruiter I knew, and you know, obviously had a, had a strong legal background at that stage. You know, it was prior to the GFC. Uh, so there, you know, there were there were job opportunities. Um, so, and then with with the with the Betfair one, the the the, the truth of the matter is, it was the university I went to. <laughs> so mm. the guy who um, Andrew Twaits, um, former Cricket Australia senior executive, who who went on to become the CEO of Betfair, uh, he'd gone to Bond University as well. And he was quite open. That was the only reason he interviewed me. <laughs> so he was just like, oh, curious. He was more curious than anything that um, there was a form, there was another Bond alumni. So sometimes you know those those things on your on your CV are, are the reason you you get that second phone call. Uh, so mm. that was. But in terms of for people who you know might be trying to come back and and and, and as you know Ben Ben's a common friend of ours and you know he he had very high profile jobs in Europe in, in the sporting space and you know. I certainly felt for him when he sort of had to try to come back and try to explain to people just how big those roles actually were, you know, the breadth of things across Europe and stuff. And, and you know, he had to sort of re- rebuild that. And and in sport in Australia, that's how it's sort of done. I mean, Australia's a little bit um, inward looking when it comes to that type of stuff. And it's, you know, what AFL club you might have worked at or you know, what cricket club you might have worked at. So I think I was a little bit lucky mm. that you know probably the legal background meant most people just sort of saw the Freehills experience and then saw a bit of overseas experience and that sort of ticked a couple of the boxes. Mm. And and the second thing as you mentioned when you went to Betfair it was a small business. I think you said three employees. Mm. Um, I myself have worked in a few startup businesses where you're literally building from scratch and you get a fair bit of rope, which which can be daunting because you come from a corporate where you pigeonholed and you've got processes and structures and you're coming here with all the freedom in the world and they go, go create a strategy for us and present it back. How did you go with that? Particularly in legal, which has a lot of jargon, a lot of systems, processes. Did you find that was refreshing going into a essentially a startup in a new country and you're building a, a new function, I'd imagine? Yeah, I think um, I think you're sort of spot on there, Vidal. I, I probably found it a little bit um, overwhelming um, because I had been, you know, at big big law firms that you know had the processes, and you know, when you came into the job, it was sort of in here it was, and it just didn't exist. And the discussions we were having with governments and sporting organisations had never had happened before because the the market hadn't deregulated in in the in the gambling market, and these sporting organisations didn't know how to deal didn't know how to deal with it and we were coming to them saying not only will we share information with you to allow you to you know look at the betting that's occurring we'll also pay you you know we'll, we'll pay you product fees to allow us to bet on your product and, and we'll sponsor you so it was all these mm. revenue streams for these sporting organizations who'd never really looked at sports gambling as a way the horse racing industry absolutely they knew they knew it backwards and they'd sort of been funded by wagering forever um, so what we were, we were a bit of a disruptor coming into that marketplace because they've been so used just to the one one provider in, in, in the tab. So it was um, it was fascinating. So we were you know we were drafting brand new agreements dealing with the, the, the lawyers for the different sporting organisations um, that had never been drafted before, 
um, and sort of saying, okay, this is how we'll share information with you. This is what we can give you. And it was all tech, you know, technology, technology based. Um, and they couldn't believe the amount of information we could provide to help them sort of with the integrity of their sports. So it, it was, it was great. It was overwhelming initially, but, um, as I said, that the sports were were open to this new revenue stream. They they knew it, it was it was coming into the marketplace. They'd seen it happen in the UK, um, and it was just sort of great to work 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 with all those sort of all those bodies. And as I said before, from a contact and you know development of my career perspective, it couldn't have happened any any better in terms of opening up door, mm. getting to know people um, across the market. And that was actually my next question because if I look at your LinkedIn, you're there for a bit over seven years, which in today's world sounds unheard of, right? <laughs> how, how did you keep yourself challenged? And, and obviously, because you were, I imagine you were growing with the business, so you probably had more opportunities and more scope and, and more exposure. Um, looking back, do you think the seven years really set you up for where you are today and, and they gave you the life and work experience you needed? Yeah, I think so, did it? I mean, we were, you know, we started very small and we grew quickly. Um, you know, the whole marketplace grew quickly. But what was so exciting about my career at Betfair is that, you know, I went to the High Court twice, um, you know, which is pretty pretty unheard of. The High Court hadn't heard hadn't heard sort of constitutional cases for, for a while. And, and we went there twice within two years, uh, won one and lost one. Um, so, um, but the first, the first one was, you know, all about um, deregulating the, the gambling marketplace and the, the concept of free trade between states, and so going going to the high court to you know to prepare a case and then you know obviously we had barristers and so on who who argued our case and senior counsels and and you know we won that case against the Western Australian government who were who were trying to ban ban um, betfair and, and ban betting exchanges in Western Australia um, and we won that case you know seven nil and that opened up the whole market and that allowed the likes of all the wagering companies to, to come into the into the Australian marketplace and, and and so on so so to be part of an industry that sort of really at the start of a deregulation it was pretty exciting so you know my role then went from sort of a purely legal role into more of the commercial side of things and, and doing the commercial relationships and sponsorships and um, and deals with broadcasters as i said before we were the first betting company to do a deal with channel 9 for the cricket and and so on. So that's sort of what kept it exciting. Um, and it was just always, it, it was an industry where it was controversial. You know, plenty of people um, had views about it, still do have views about it, whether it's um, the right thing for sport and whether it's the right thing that there is um, proliferation of, of gambling advertising, for example. And, you know, I would say it probably went too far there at, at a point in time with sport. But when you're in it and you're dealing with governments, both from federal and state level, and you're trying to argue that a open competitive marketplace is better than a monopolistic or you know forcing betting underground i think it, it was really exciting from a career perspective mm, yeah interesting now we, we touch on one more thing just with that before we go back to your personal magic moment um again I, when i look at it from an, from an outside view you went from a traditional legal background into a you said a startup in the betting space which was I'd imagine there'd be a lot of government government involvement there and the world of sports. How did you understand that? Like, did you have mentors that helped you understand some of the intricacies of the industry or did you read a lot or did you do training courses? Because that, I think, fascinates me where in today's world, a lot of people follow their passion and they want to move industries. Are there any things you did that you look back on that you can share with the listeners that helped you succeed? Yeah, look, I think I, I, I did sort of engross myself into it to really understand, I mean, betting 
you know, is another language um, for the majority of people. You know, if you, you know, have to stand in a in a TAB or stand in a booking drink at a race course, and some of the things being said, um, you know, could go go over, go over your head the majority of the time. It is another language. So, you know, understanding that, you know, dealing with our customers when I was at Betfair and, and understanding, you know. You know, they were sophisticated betters who understood the marketplace. So, spent a lot of time with with, with them. Um, look, we were lucky that we had a we had a parent company in the UK who who had been successful, and I was very lucky that I got a, a few trips back to the UK um, to spend some time in, in London with their team, which had you know been sort of ten years older than us as a business. And um, mm. you know, some of the uh, the general counsel there, a guy called Martin Crudis, um, was extremely helpful in explaining. You know, because they'd gone through the journey that the Australian business was going through. You know, the acceptance, like lobbying government, lobbying sports, trying to get acceptance with the, the traditional operators. Um, you know, trying to explain the product um, that it wasn't the end of the world. You know, you weren't going to have all these people trying to. Um, you know, lose lose horse races or lose sporting matches just to make money on Betfair. It wasn't going to happen. And if it did happen, the transparency of the market, you know, was really trying to say to them, this is just like the stock exchange. You know, this has got the same transparency as the stock exchange, the same reporting requirements. So I think certainly the, the UK business and, um, you know, they, they were very open and wanted the Australian business to be successful. And um, even as much so as one of the founders, a guy called Ed Ray, who, who founded Betfair in the UK, and is obviously a very successful man for that. He was one. He was in. He was the initial CEO of the business here in Australia. So getting to work with him mm. was, was pretty exciting because he, he was one of those guys who who had a vision, and you're always impressed by those guys who can just start a business up and and, and see an opportunity in a marketplace to disrupt it. Mm, 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 very cool. Now, I think you mentioned earlier you had another magic moment that was outside of work. Yeah, yeah, it was probably probably just another another moment that you know again you don't you don't plan these things and then they sort of go different directions. But certainly, um, you know, I met my wife Christina. Um, she's an, she's American and she was um, she was backpacking to Australia and we randomly met in Sydney at a bar in Sydney on St Patrick's um, on St Patrick's nice so um, <laughs> at an Irish bar as you'd expect. Yeah, but um, I was only up there for two nights. So I'd, I'd actually gone up there. I'd, I'd only been back from Dublin for about three or four months. I'd only been um, in my Betfair role for about that, that that amount of time, and I was only up there just to see a couple of those guys. And and she was uh, she'd only just landed in from a, from I think from Mexico. She'd come from so um, certainly you know you, you know again like your career you don't plan that, and like your relationship side you don't plan that, but. Um, you know that's been a that's obviously been a fantastic moment, and then being able to you know convince her then to move to Australia, and you know for us to then establish our life in Melbourne um, has been great because her family's from America, obviously, and she has no family here, and mm. my family's in Queensland, so it meant that you know it's allowed us to really sort of stay in Melbourne and, and form a form a family there, and, and and a lot of great networks around there over the last sort of and that was sort of ten years ago, so um, she's been on that journey then. For, for, with me through through that whole period so um, mm. again just something just randomly being up there and um in sydney at that time it was um it was cool and um i certainly i remember my best man speech at our wedding we got married in hawaii which was great you know sort of the middle the middle ground for um both families yeah. to meet and uh i'd always been obsessed still am obsessed with american sports and um you know, just love it, and so he th- he thought it was hilarious that um you know I found an found an American wife who uh, <laughs> you know meant I could just continue my uh, my love affair with all things American. Yeah, and that was actually what I was going to ask. So I, was, I was I was talking to Ben leading up to this recording, and I said to him, "What's something I should ask Josh, given your knowledge of Josh?" And he said exactly this. He said, "Definitely touch on the fact that 
the American influence on Josh as a person and how his worldview has expanded. And I understand you're a big NFL fan as well. So can you tell me about that? Like, not just from a work point, but from a life point, how is America? Because America, I think, obviously the scale is a lot bigger than Australia and you go there and everything's two, two times the size. What what effects has that had that has had that had on your life just generally and also the way you think now? Oh, look, I just think it was, you know, when you've got a, a, an American wife and, you know, we've, we've gone to America a lot, we've taken our children there a lot, um, you do become ingrained in the culture and you start to understand the country a lot more and I think um, <laughs> I think people don't really – I think they probably do now, maybe do now, but I don't think people get how different America is. Um, you know, it is – it's 50 states, but you know, it's more 50 countries, right? It's a, you know, it's the same size as Europe, and uh, you know, and people probably don't realise they think, oh, all Americans are this or all Americans are that. They're just so so different. Christina's family's from Indiana, um, you know, she's got family in Florida and she's got family in Colorado, and even those three different families are all quite different in their views and attitudes. And you know, being anyone who's watched the politics over the last few months, you know, <laughs> thinks they see a divided country. Well, when you're there, it, it is. It's a different country. They're, they're just they're just they're different climates, they're different economies, they're different upbringings. So you can see, you can see why it becomes a country that's very different. So just just fascinated by the country. I think the way, you know, we come right back to what we talked about right at the start about the business of sport. I mean, they have, they, 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 they've, they've, they've got every single uh, ounce out of their sport and their business side of things. I mean, they're just, they're just so professionally run the way they, the way they drive their revenues out of the sport, you know, I'm sure purists would argue it's gone too far, you know, and they've you know, mm. turned it into a, you know, they've lost the, the passion of the sport. But I'm not sure. I've been in plenty of sports bars in America watching, you know, World Series games or NBA Finals games and the passion of those towns. And, um, you know, I think one thing I've always I've always missed in Australia um, would be how one city in, in, Amer- in America, they all go for the same team. So if you're in Denver, mm. you go, everyone's a Broncos fan. And um, I just think that's fantastic. And I think the the, the, the college, you know, how, you know how that brings people together is great. Whereas in Melbourne, it's wonderful, and the you know the rivalry between Carlton and Collingwood, for example, um, is is fantastic. But imagine if all of you and all of your mates went for the one team, and the whole city went for that one team. Um, Mm. It'd be uh, it'd be quite cool. I suppose it's a bit like how the Brisbane Broncos, I suppose, must get get the backing of a, of a full team um, in, in the thing. But in America, that's across baseball, football, basketball, ice hockey. It's it's quite cool. Mm. One of the things I always love about my mates is is the American influence of sports, like particularly ESPN when you watch their pre-game shows or post-game shows. Like you said, it's almost a theatre on its own. Whereas when you see the Aussie ones, you sort of go, "Why are we so kind of?" basic compared to that and i've always wondered why i think just the american way of life the way they talk and the passion they bring to sort of uh, media where when you watch sports center or you watch an nba game and you watch the post-match interview with lebron or something there's a the, the elevation is just different to an afl post-match right i i couldn't agree more and i think that's that that passion Americans have just generally. And I think it's one thing I love about America, and it's probably more of a middle America thing. And I, you know, I call middle America, Indiana and the Midwest. And that's where Christina went to university. She went to Indiana university. They are very positive. You know, they are, they, they, they're always pumping people up. And one thing Christina really struggled with in America, in, in Australia, excuse me, when she moved here was sort of how we, we knock, we knock each other, you know, that sort of tall, you know, mm. called tall poppy syndrome. But, 
And I sort of explained it to her. Oh, no, I'm, I've been nice to that guy. And she was like, well, you just, you know, you just criticised him for 15 minutes, <laughs> you know. And um, she goes, in America, we don't do that. And uh, so I, I do like how, how, how they how – they, and now anyone who listens to this who knows me will find that ironic because I'm one of the ones who, who knock people a fair bit of, anyway. But I just like how Americans um, are so positive and they're, and they're very genuine about it as well. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the beauty of either working or living in other countries, right? You experience these sort of – you go out of your bubble almost, whereas if you live in Caulfield in Melbourne, you only see one one side of the coin. So. <laughs> right, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah. Um, Josh, is there, is there a – uh, you've had a, from your working career or life in general painful learning to date and can you share how you perhaps dealt with it yeah probably the big the the, the, the difficult one which i just touched on before is the high court case the, the second one um that betfair were involved in and it was it was a bloody one the first one was quite a, a legal argument with the western australian government and it went straight to court and a decision was made but the second one was sort of a four-year battle um with racing New South Wales, um, and you know, I think one of your listeners would have heard of Peter Volandis, who's the CEO of Racing mm. New South Wales, and now the chairman of the rugby of rugby league. Um, and it was over four years, and it was a really difficult court case. And the court case was all based around on what fees wagering operators should pay the racing industry. And at Betfair, we'd always advocated that a fee absolutely should be paid, but we we're arguing on what on what calculation that fee should be based on. And it went all the way to the High Court, but this case went through the Federal Court, the Full Court, and then the High Court. And for Betfair, it was a crucial case because um, of the margins that Betfair operated on, and so it was really a, you know, they call it, you know, they call it company killer litigations, and it was, it was really one of those. Now Betfair's still surviving and, and doing well, but I think you know it, it, it could have done a whole lot better in Australia if this case had gone its way. So we lost that case. Um, and look, ironically, I now work in the racing industry, so I've had the benefits of that of that victory um, for the racing industry um, on the other side of the fence. But certainly, from a personal perspective, it was, you know, it was very difficult. You know, it was a, a case that um, I've been involved in at the heart of it for the whole period. And you know, if you ask me why I stayed there for seven years, it was really you know four of those seven years was seeing this litigation through, and you weren't going to jump off, you know, at, at any point in yeah. the ride. So yeah, it was difficult. It was, um, you know, it was at the end we, we lost, and so we had to, you know, didn't end the company. We had to negotiate with each of the racing bodies, but it's um, certainly put put the business under pressure. But yeah, so I had to sort of work through that, and um, you know, you know, sort of try to find um, what the next challenge would be after that. And that was that's probably what fed to my thinking about moving on from Betfair. I sort of felt that you know. I'd been in that period of a startup and trying to get the regulatory framework settled and, and all those things, and that that come to an end at the court case because the court case finally ruled a line in how um, wagering operators would be um, treated by the, the racing and sporting bodies, um, and then that's probably that was probably the point that started started to think, okay, well, what's the next what's the next adventure for me? Where, where should I take my career after this? Because I didn't want to just simply just always just be involved in online gambling. I'm fascinated by it. I think it's it's an amazing industry, but I did think I should sort of spread my wings a little bit after that sort of court case. Mm, mm, very interesting. Um, now, a, lo- a lot of the listeners in this show also, Josh, are young in their life, whether they're graduates or starting their career or, or wanting to pivot pivot because they don't enjoy what they do. Um, and you've obviously been in, in some big leadership roles the last, what, close to 10 years now what would you say if if a young person said in today's world with the competitiveness and working from home and and all the challenges you deal with they want to sort of build their career and also be a leader 
what to you is a leader when someone's growing in their career? Like how, how can they stand out from the crowd? Um, and then the other side to that, you being a leader, like how do you get the best out of people? And is there some things you do that you can share in terms of tips and tricks that you do to set a vision or inspire others? Yeah. Um, I, I, my advice to anyone who's sort of trying to work their way through a business and, and as you said, sort of stand out is, is, is just, just take on every, take on every challenge. Um, you know, if an opportunity is offered to you, um, I love when I hear of sort of young young people in our business who've just sort of who've taken on a, a, a project or you know outside their sort of hitting zone or outside their their remit, um, you know. And and those opportunities are arise. I know a lot of people say, oh, it's really hard to get those opportunities. But I know within our Melbourne Racing Club, we're always got projects going on that aren't in anyone's sort of business as usual roles, and so it requires mm. either. External consultants coming in to do it, which I absolutely hate doing, because um, I think they come in. You don't, you lose the IP as soon as they leave. Um, you know, bringing in a contractor again, just additional cost. Or it's the third one where, you know, the people within the business find find the time or find the you know, and, and sometimes it is means you could do work longer hours or you have to, you know, prioritize some other things. So I would I would I would recommend to anyone that because one it's you know, it shows that you, you you're willing to go above and beyond. But but secondly, you'll you'll learn about a different part of the business. You'll learn about um, an area that you might not get day to day exposure in, and that continues just to grow, and continues then for you to get a further understanding of the business. Um, so I'd certainly encourage anyone if if they're seeking those opportunities within their organisation, you know, ask their manager. You know, are there any cross-functional projects going on? Is there anything, you know, that I could maybe just put my toe in the water um, to sort of understand a different part of the business? And um, so I think I'd certainly give, I'd certainly give that advice. Um, hmm. in, in terms of your second question, what, what, what I try to do, um, you know, I think you know, I think everyone would have done those sort of personality type tests you do as you sort of move up in, in management and, and certainly my traditionally, you know, legal background I, I saw things very black and white um mm. you know if i was right it meant you were wrong um it was that sort of that, <laughs> that sort of approach and as i sort of was lucky enough to be promoted in my functional space i started realizing that that wasn't serving me well to get getting things done um you know it was great that i might be able to argue the point but then the other person would say well so what you know we're not we're not litigating this there's no there's no judge at the end of this um there's no winner and loser so I sort of had to sort of change my approach somewhat um, and sort of become, you know, and I was very lucky. I, I, I was I was provided some extra educational opportunities, um, you know, some coaching, some one-on-one coaching, and, and really we focused a lot on that, on um, understanding that really as you move up in organisations, regardless of whether you're selling horse racing, sports betting, beer, um, mobile phones, whatever, whatever it is, um, really it all comes down to stakeholder management. And um, and trying to and trying to get people moving in the same direction. So, I certainly just changed a couple of things about how I sort of um, you know approach people. I, I sort of spend a lot more time, sort of a couple of levels down within the business. Um, you know, one on one with different people to understand what was sort of more more happening operationally. Um, and I think that was good. Um, it was good for me from a learning and you know understanding the business a lot more. And and every time I sort of was afforded lucky enough afforded a promotion i sort of i sort of did that within my teams um and spent one-on-one time with with different people and you can do it in different you can do it in different ways and one, one way we do it at the race course and i encourage all our managers to do it we've got the race course right there 
So, yeah. you know, I do, I do a lot of my meetings with a walk around the track um, mm. because the race course is right there and it, straight away you're changing the environment and you're changing the, the relationship and it's, it's amazing how much more um, amenable it is and how much more open people are in that environment than when rather than sitting across the desk from them. Mm, yeah, couldn't agree more. I think when you were saying that, one thing that I remembered early in my career was I think someone told me, you can you can get a project done and be successful, but if you lose friends along the way, it's not worth it and eventually it'll come back to bite you. Mm. So I think if I understand what you're saying, I think that's probably my biggest message to listeners who are young in their career is often in today's world where it's a dog-eat-dog world, you go, oh, I just want to get it done. It doesn't matter how I go about it. I think particularly people like yourself are in a leadership role and who've been to that grind themselves, those things stand out. And even in performance reviews now, I know there's a what and a how aspect. It's not just the what now. Um, and I'd, I'd imagine in the legal world particularly, that'd be interesting because like you said earlier, it can be very black and white. It's about if you get the job done or not, but the way you went about it maybe wasn't as important as it is in today's world. Well, what, what would you say about that? Oh, I think absolutely did it. I think that's that's spot on. And, you know, all the studies now, all the, all the employee surveys, you know, people want to they want to work in a place that respects them and they and that appreciates them and um, you know it's it's not as it's not it's not how it used to be um, and and I think you want to you want to, you know you know you look at all the the, the um, successful companies and they've been able to foster that type of culture so certainly that's something we focus a lot on um, you know whether we're successful or not is 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 for, is for others to say but um, you know certainly we've we pride ourselves on our employee surveys and. And giving those people that that, that that opportunity, and you know, I think certainly the race club's heading in the right direction from a from a success point of view. So I think it's think it's working, um, and that's been difficult, you know, in, in the last year with COVID and um, some mm. really difficult decisions that had to be made when people point at your culture and point at your values, and you sort of say, yeah, I, I, you know, we're we're trying to do this in the most compassionate way possible, but you know, when your revenues go go to close to zero overnight. Um, you know how, how do you get that balance right? So we certainly try to look after as many employees as possible, but it wasn't it wasn't possible to look after everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if we, if we go directly into your hustle um, and try and understand some of your your recent roles better, um, how would you describe those recent roles you've done, particularly your current role and and the last few years? Um, yeah, so my role, you know, as a CEO of the, of the race club is. Now it's a, it's a, it's an interesting role, and what sort of attracted me to the Melbourne Racing Club was the diversification of the business. So you know, as well as the racing side, which is sort of the high profile side of our business, you know, we've also got things like media rights. Um, we deal with every single wagering operator because they you know they, they help us fund um, our businesses. Um, but then we've also got a, a very big pub group. Um, you know, we own fifteen pubs. Um, you know, which has been fascinating for me to learn about those. I mean, that's. You, know, you talk about customer service being the most important thing, and that's what that's what those things are. I mean, everyone has their favourite pub. Um, usually, it's not mm. the brightest and you know, and cleanest <laughs> pub. It's because who's in there. You know, it's who's there, who are the other customers, who are the staff, and, and we really pride ourselves on that. So my, you know, my role is is across all those businesses. We've also got a, a strong property development business. Um, we have large property holdings and. You know, we've got a quite a large master plan at, at Caulfield specifically to, to rebuild Caulfield. It's been there for 140 years as a race course. Um, it's in a city. You know, the, the city's grown up around it, um, and now we really want to, we want to invest significantly. So, um, you know, my job is is a stakeholder management role. You know, I have a I have a committee above me which are, are, are voted in by the members. So it's an unusual one. I don't have to report to the Australian Stock Exchange. I, we don't pay dividends. So. Mm. Um, it's a different type of role. You, success is not always just the bottom line. 
you know, success is what your members believe they're getting for value. Success is what the racing participants, you know, the trainers, jockeys, owners believe they're getting from prize money and from your tracks and all these type of things. So success is what the government, you know, the government has a huge influence on, on us, you know. So success really is what a number of stakeholders see 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 how you're doing. So it's there's no direct, you know, <laughs> it's not a stock price that I can point to to say, mm-hmm. you know, the Melbourne Racing Club share price is up 32% under, under my CEO role. So yeah. it's one of those funny ones where it's really um, success is based on quite a few intangibles. Mm. Well, exactly right. I think intangible, and that probably makes it harder, I'd imagine, as a leader because... Like I know in my world, in a corporate world, it's all about numbers and targets. And if you hit them, you're successful. If you miss them, you're not. Whereas obviously for you, it sounds like there's a lot more underneath the surface there as well. Um, and then what would you say if I, if you look at betting and racing, if you look out the next 5, 10, 15 years, what are some of the things you're looking forward to? Are there any kind of focuses or priorities or something you'd love to see in the industry? Yeah, look, I think it's really interesting for the racing industry. Um, you know, it's got to stay relevant. It's got to stay relevant to the younger demographic. And, you know, it's – and there are just so many competing opportunities for it. We, we've, we've only touched on sports betting as one of those. But, you know, I think of things like esports, um, mm. you know, all these other type of um, marketplaces that are opening for younger people where they can, you know, entertainment but also for their for their gambling dollar, you know, online poker, all these type of things. So it didn't exist over the last few years. So racing needs to keep, um, you know, keeping up from a digital perspective. I think we've done pretty well um, with our media coverage and distribution. Um, but, yeah, I'd love to see racing really sort of try to, you know, really try to approach that younger demographic. And I think the number one thing racing needs to convince people and, and sell its story is on, on, on welfare and equine welfare and how horses mm-hmm. are treated and so on because you see there's a death in the Melbourne Cup you know, it's front page news and people ask, well, why, why are horses being, being used like this? And I think certainly the younger demographic, um, did it, uh, I think are very socially responsible. Um, and you talked before about employees, <clears throat> you know, employees want to know that, you know, what, what, what the company they're working for is doing it, you know, sustainably and responsibly. And I think, you know, the racing industry over the next five to 10 years really needs to demonstrate very clearly, um, that it treats its it cares for its horses, it, it cares for its participants, you know, jockeys and and trainers and so on, and um, it's a sustainable industry for, for those reasons, um, and and get people in love with the animal, you know, understand the equine athlete like they do their favourite footy player or their favourite cricketer, um, you know, everyone mm. respects Dustin Martin for what he can do. Well, you know, everyone should hopefully respect Winks for being an amazing horse athlete as well. Mm, yeah, for sure. Yeah, an interesting interesting space to watch. Um, now, Josh, we like finishing up the show with the final sprint, which is really a bunch of rapid-fire questions to understand some of your habits and inspirations. Is there one investment you've made that you consider the best in your life? And this doesn't have to be financial. Yeah, no, no doubt. You know, from, on a personal front, you know, ha- you know having a, a good person by your side makes life, you know, I don't think any successful person would say that uh, does allow you to, you know, you know, when you do it, when you're working hard and you, know, you come home and there's a, there's a, there is that life at home for you. So there's no doubt that investing on the home front is, is, is really, really important. Um, but certainly I just think investing in uh, – one thing that I've sort of been quite good at is, is staying in touch with people and, you know, it's it, – it, mm. I think just investing in those things because it is a small world and you do come across people way more than you think. 
and you know it's an old saying never burn bridges but i just think it's so relevant um i just think i just my advice to people would be um yeah invest in invest in relationships it's not hard to follow someone up after a meeting or after a, a lunch or after something you know and just you know it doesn't mean you have to become their best friend i'm not suggesting that mm. but investing in relationships is, is well worth it yep um is, is there one thing you want to learn in the next six months um yeah i I'm probably I'm, I'm really fascinated in how our business comes back from COVID. I'm sort of I, I'm nervous, but you know, but but positive. I, I just think never before has um, we ever faced any of this, and we've sort of navigated ourselves to this point. So probably what 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 what, what we'll learn is um, how resilient our business is. You know, how, will we get back people back to the race course in in big numbers to come to events? Will we people get mm. people back to we put a lot of sort of music events on and, and all sorts of different sort of festivals. Getting people back to those things will be really interesting. I think, you know, how sticky are your customers will be a real challenge for lots of businesses. Mm. Is there one quote or person that inspires you? I always think that if you, if you, you know, if you ever, if you ever sort of down in the dumps or think things aren't going that well, um, my, 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 simple, my simple thing that I do is um, I'll go for a run and then, um, and then I'll and then I'll just try to attack the problem. I just think trying to avoid things um, it, it just it seems to never never get there. So um, certainly I, I'm certainly one you know a person who's not always up and about, not always sort of positive and um, all the time. But certainly whenever like everyone, when you have those down times, certainly what I try to do is just head out for a run. And usually when I'm in, having the run, it's when I'm usually trying to solve the problem. It's funny how that happens. Mm. Once you clear your mind. <laughs> mm. No, I, I completely agree with that. I'm exactly the same. I find if you're sitting around, you fall into a rut. Once you get out, it's just something magical in your body that you just somehow get out of it and think clearer. So 100%. Um, and last one, is there something you try and do every week to get the best out of yourself physically and mentally? Uh, yeah, something that's, that's been over the last couple of years, it's, it's been um, really positive for me. I, I took up boxing um, on my, mm. wife, my wife's sort of advice. Um, not, not that I'm getting in the ring any time, it. don't worry about that. Um, <laughs> I'm, uh, too much of a coward for that. But certainly the, the, the fitness aspect, but also just he, this guy that I that a coach in, Christina does it as well. Um, he, he, she, she sees him separately and he's just a good fella because he just has a chat. And he's, um, I always tell him he's sort of turned in, into a life coach more than just a boxing coach, which he laughs at. But uh, <laughs> it's certainly something that's every, it's every Wednesday morning. It's, um, you know, it's in the diary. It's 30 every Wednesday morning. And uh, it's been something that's been good routine. And it's, uh, we've, we've, we've become, become quite good mates with this boxing coach. And we talk about everything but work, which is, which is good. Mm. No, brilliant. Well, there we there we go, mate. That's the finish line. Um, really, really glad we connected and, and loved having you on. Thanks for being so open. Um, and yeah, best wishes with everything ahead and keep in touch. Oh, good on you, Vida. Well done on this, uh, this project as well. It's going well for you, mate. There you have it, Josh Blanksby. I hope you took away some actionable insights and learnings from this conversation to apply to your lives and be one person better every day. And I look forward to sharing the next episode with you next Tuesday. Stay tuned.